Please join me in welcoming back Yossi Chayes, Topic the Zohar. Thank you, Ari. And thank you for coming back. Um, okay. Uh, you may recall that uh, we finished off last week. So you may recall that last week we spoke, I spoke, uh, about kind of long pre-history of esotericism in, Jew in Jewish life. Uh, and we just about made it to Kabbalah. So uh, it started provisionally speaking about the Sphiroth and some other things. But I want to just jump back in for the last few thoughts related to that background of the emergence of Kabbalah. And we'll go quickly from there to looking at the most significant work produced in the classical era of Kabbalah, uh, the Zohar. So just to kind of sum things up with regard to the environment in which Kabbalah emerged, and note that I'm using the term emerge and not talking about the origins of it all, the mysterious origins of the ideas that would come to be associated with Kabbalah, the Sphiroth, and other subjects that we'll touch upon. I'm not using the term origins because nobody really knows. It's one of those things that despite generations of scholarly efforts, we haven't really gotten to the bottom of, but we can talk about emergence, namely, where do we see for the first time Kabbalistic literature and people referring to themselves as Kabbalists and using the terms, using a, a term like sphira, sphirot, in a way that is identifiable as Kabbalistic, right, um, rather than pre-Kabbalistic, which we saw last week in Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Formation. Okay, so summing up the issue with Kabbalah emerging in the 12th century at a time when Jewish philosophy is entering the European sphere, and in the wake of Maimonides, who's really the greatest philosopher, just like the Zohar, is maybe the greatest book of Kabbalah. Maimonides was the superstar of Jewish philosophy. It started with Sa'ad Yagaon, as I mentioned last week. But 200 years later, or even a bit less, Maimonides in Andalusia and then afterwards in, in Egypt becomes the great Jewish philosopher of all time and one of the most important rabbis of all time, and this most important figure in the history of the Jewish people says something audacious. And that is that, remember that passage we were reading from the Babylonian Talmud tractate Chagiga last week about who you're allowed, or how many, the secrets of the Torah and the circumstances surrounding their transmission. Um, the first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of Ezekiel, that's the work of creation and the work of the chariot. 
the very heart of Jewish esotericism, the headquarters of our tradition's biggest secrets, the most classified information that you can only get if you have received it from a master who received it from a master who received it from a master. And, and you get it before they even give it over to you because a simple wink, a chapter heading is sufficient for you to know what the deal is, right? So that's what we, we talked about last week. Maimonides comes along in the 12th century and says, those most secret dimensions of our tradition can be identified with the two seminal works by Aristotle, the physics and the metaphysics. You want to know what the secrets of creation are? Read Aristotle, physics. You want to know what the secrets of the chariot are? Read the metaphysics. Go to your neighborhood bookstore, if there are still any, or <laughs> download it to your Kindle. And that's it. Now you know what Masa Breshit and Masa Merkava are. Now this is kind of an extreme claim, and it's one among many rather extreme positions that Maimonides took in his Guide for the Perplexed. But it's almost inconceivable that at some level the insistence on his being wrong about that was one of the formative influences that shaped the emergence of the Kabbalah. In other words, the Kabbalists are people who are sensitive to many of the same things that Maimonides is sensitive to. They're also troubled by the fact that the Torah seems like a pretty simple-minded storybook and we live in a much more sophisticated age. There must be a deeper secret to it if God was responsible for it. God gave the Torah and it says some, some children's stories about people having these little adventures here and there. That's the best God can do if he's going to write a book. Couldn't he do some like Aristotle's metaphysics? Couldn't he do something a little bit more sophisticated? So Kabbalists and philosophers share that sense that there must be a deeper meaning because God had to have written a more serious book than the Torah. But many Jews who encounter Maimonides claim identifying the most secret parts of the Torah with works by Aristotle are going to be uh, scandalized and interested in uh, a kind of response. And Kabbalah is then, to some extent, a response. I, I made up two slides to sort of sum it, up, sum it all up. Philosophers and Kabbalists agree on, sorry, they agree on these things. I guess if I read it off the board with you, then I won't block the view of the board. But they, all, they agree, traditional Jewish learning isn't enough. You can't get everything you need to know to be a good human being. And even to know God, right? To be a good human being, they don't just mean a good you know, citizen or something, but a, f a fully realized human being. You can't get it just from traditional learning. Uh, this is connected to the second point, but not, it's not, a, it's not uh, enough to say merely that traditional Jewish learning isn't enough because that includes also rabbinic literature. The Bible requires reinterpretation, especially because it's so anthropomorphic and seemingly so childish. 
who is that intended for? I mean, I went to college. You've got to, right? So Kabbalists and philosophers agree there must be a secret level that you could access, that the, this storybook is just that. It's just a kind of disguise hiding God's real message for really intelligent or realized, evolved, enlightened beings. Um, the third point is, let's get serious, let's get systematic. This is a very medieval impulse, especially in the 12th century. This is when it's time to stop doing everything as stream of consciousness and get traditions organized. The scholastics are doing it for the Christians. All kinds of Islamic scholars have been doing it for centuries with Islamic law and, and lore. And Jews began doing this with Saadia's work in the 10th century, but especially in the 12th century, we see that there's a willingness and a, a need recognized to present Jewish lore in a systematic way. And one thing I think it's important for you to appreciate is that although, as we'll see very soon, the Zohar, for example, is a very um, mythic kind of narrative. It's, a, it's, a, it's not like reading Aristotle at all. But the Zohar is an exceptional Kabbalistic work. And most Kabbalistic works are well organized, like scientific treatises, trying to give you information in a very um, careful and uh, categorized way. Next point is, I think, important to appreciate as well, and that is that if you know what the truth is about the nature of reality, and your, your understanding is what you think of as good science, what you, what you know to be true as an educated human being who's, you don't have to understand how everything works, but you know, a person of our age usually says, okay, evolution, fine, Gravity, fine, right? Uh, geocentric solar system, okay, <laughs> right? So you have certain, certain uh, a consensus about the nature of reality that is more or less in keeping with the good science of your age. And that's, a, that's quite uh, universally assented to in your, in your society, sometimes even on the planet today, there are probably some places where they'll say no, maybe, but for the most part, most humans are comfortable saying that the earth is round and whatever. There are these things that are a consensus and it would be, it would be ridiculous to think that you would want to associate with a, a religion that contradicted what everybody knows to be true. So here's the important point. You have to reinterpret the piece that lends itself to interpretation. You can't, um, you can't just interpret reality. <laughs> you can't interpret the science because it's very clear. It's not written in a poetic way, but all of the poetic sources of the religious tradition can be reinterpreted. And so Jewish philosophers and Kabbalists both dedicate themselves to providing interpretations of traditional Jewish sources that 
force them to conform to what they know to be true about reality. Now, what they knew to be true about reality is not quite the same as what we believe to be true about reality, but it's a principle that there's good science and there's a reality map that is something that there's real consensus with regard to. And any intelligent person will want to make sure if they are committed to the idea that the religion needs to be maintained and sustained and you need to live by it, you have to fix it so that you're not doing something that's absolutely ridiculous. And just to add to that, knowledge of God is the goal of life. That's something that philosophers in the Middle Ages and Kabbalists would agree on. Knowledge of God is, is the goal of life. It's something that you probably could read Aristotle also claiming. So it's not uniquely Jewish. It's just this idea that to be a fully evolved human being means awakening your highest nature. And whether you understand that in terms of intellects, consciousness, whatever the terminology will be in the system, that's all part of what it means to be human, whether you're a philosopher or, or a Kabbalist. As opposed to, if you went and asked a rabbi how you should live and what should be your ultimate goal of existence, and a rabbi might say, love, love someone, you know, you want to be your highest nature, love someone. Usually philosophers and Kabbalists will uh, be more into consciousness than love, but that's a terrible generalization. Okay. <clears throat> so, there are disagreements, and I just want to note a couple of them here. When you bring a philosopher to explain Judaism to you, they will never say that doing a mitzvah accomplishes anything more than maybe reminding you of an important principle or doing something that is part of the social contract that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You shouldn't murder someone else because that would make a terrible society and we need a place where people are safe. But well, why do I have to put a mezuzah on the door? Well, if you ask the philosopher, it's to remember God when you go in and out of the house. If you ask Maimonides why, why the four um, species over Sukkot, he explains in the, in the Mishnah Torah that they're terrific produce for using over a week because they don't rot. Okay, great rational explanation for the commandment. If you ask a Kabbalist, the Zohar talks about what are you doing when you shake the lulav and bring it together with the etrog and the myrtle and the willow, the Zohar will say, ah, the etrog is the yud of the tetragrammaton, and the myrtle is the hay of the tetragrammaton, and the, and the palm frond is the vav, and the willows is the last hay of the yud hay vav hay name of God. And when you bring them together, you're unifying the divine realm. Well, that sounds a lot more compelling than just using some fruit before it goes off. You see, so there's a real disagreement about that. And let me just finish by saying with this section that basically 
Kabbalists are a lot more comfortable saying what God is, saying things about God, talking about God, even though they're also inclined to reserve a part of God as the part that we don't talk about because that part of God is beyond description and conceptualization. That's the Ein, the nothing with a capital N God. Ein Sof, the infinite God. Not much to say about that God, but we can tell you a lot about the God that engages with the world, engages with creation, emanates creation, and so forth. Maimonides' classic move is to say you can't say anything about God, and everything you learn is in order to know that what you've learned is not something that should be said of God. So just to make sure I'm clear on this, are you saying that philosophers were not Kabbalists, and the Kabbalists were not philosophers? Mm. So Maimonides did not study Kabbalah? That's correct. There were many uh, cases of figures who blur the categories, who understand themselves to be philosophical Kabbalists or Kabbalistic philosophers. It's not black and white. Um, at all. Like when I was studying, they, they tended to make it seem a lot more black and white than it is when you actually look at the books. But um, with regard to any of the classical Jewish philosophers through Maimonides, none of them were Kabbalists because none of them could have been Kabbalists because there wasn't any Kabbalistic literature. I mean, you could say they, they were Kabbalists and kept it a total secret. There are legends about Maimonides becoming a Kabbalist on his deathbed or repenting. Um, nobody thinks that those are really historically credible, but it was important at some point, probably not before the 16th century, for someone to tell the story of how Maimonides recanted his, his overbearing Arist Aristotelianism and came to his senses about the truth of the Kabbalah before he died. Um, so, the mistake to, is to think that just because the philosophers weren't Kabbalists, that they weren't spiritual or they weren't uh, trying to achieve prophecy even, right? It's perfectly reasonable to read Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed as a guide to becoming a prophet in our day. But it doesn't use any Kabbalistic language, cosmology, it's just, it's coming from a different place. So a lot of things in common, and still two camps. Sometimes I say philosophy and Kabbalah in the Middle Ages is like Satmar and Lubavitch. So if you're a Satmar, you Lubavitch, you think that's the two most antithetical categories I could ever imagine. They're like oil and water, never to be imagined in the same place. And if you're anything but a Satmar or a Lubavitcher, you just look at them, you think, oh, those are some Hasidim. Those are Hasidim. So philosophy and Kabbalah make a lot of noise, and it turns out the tale full of sound and fury, generally signifying nothing. I won't say told by an idiot, but I just did. Oh. Yes? Go back. Could you explain that first sentence? Yeah, that philosophy will read Jewish tradition as either being allegorical, that it's the, all the traditions and stories are, t are allegories for philosophical concepts, uh, or sociological in the sense that it exists in order to create a safe space for philosophers to philosophize along the lines of 
uh, Marx, opiate of the masses, philosophers thought that it was important that people think that God gave a revealed text that, that insists that they not murder and steal and rape and pillage um, unless it's specifically commanded. Um, but that, uh, that, that it was important for people to believe that that was important to God and that God was going to kick their butts if they, you know, in the afterlife, right, if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And all this, of course, to make it safe for philosophers to philosophize in a nice, quiet setting where people are well-behaved. Um, and Kabbalists see everything in the tradition as a right that, that can save the performer and contribute to the salvation of the cosmos. Okay, a minor point. The Sfirot, uh, I've managed to avoid for such a long time here in this discussion of Kabbalah, but the main thing that you could say creates the family resemblance that allows us to identify Kabbalistic texts in the wild. You say, hmm, this author is using this, this key, this code, to understand the weekly Torah portion, the story, to understand a particular commandment, to understand uh, an, a relationship issue or a, an anatomical issue or something, some, really anything. They're using this code of the ten spherot and mapping all kinds of things in terms of those ten spherot. I think even if the spherot are unfamiliar to you, you might be familiar with something that seems either perfectly sensible or utterly absurd that I can compare it to, and that's the astrological signs. Some people in this room probably take their zodiac, horoscope, astrology seriously. Some probably think it's, it's pseudoscience or idolatry. But the idea that you could have 12 categories, 12 zodiac signs, and you say, well, my sign, I'm a Gemini, and then some astrology person will say, oh, well, you're, well you must be like this, that, or the other, or they'll guess your sign. That's because they have created sort of ideal types, and they have a way of reading reality through those types. And you say, oh, well, you're Gemini, but in your... Libra is in your second house or whatever. Oh, in other words, so a Kabbalist says, by the way, just that that's showing you that the names of the the names of oh yeah, the names of the Sirot mostly come from this biblical book, but Chronicles, not not hugely important. Yes? Is this similar to the chakra system? You could compare it, yeah, fair enough. Like, I'm not going to say it's one-to-one, -one, but also I'm not familiar enough with with um, you know, Indian sacred literature to know whether, the, whether there are traditions that use the chakras to analyze the Vedas and the Upanishads, the way that the Kabbalists use the Sphero to analyze the stories in the Bible. You know, I, don't, I don't know how much the comparison fits all the details, but certainly the Kabbalists map that structure onto the human body and do so very clearly, and there are practices that are based on circulating the energies 
through those centers that seem similar to the chakra practices that I've seen at a remove at least. Um, so I'm a Gemini with Scorpio in my blah blah house. Sorry, I don't mean to disparage astrology. I just don't really understand it. Um, but I can also say, oh well, you know, my Kabbalistic analysis of my character is that ah, uh, you know, uh, well, or just let's just say, oh, I uh, my son w was running out into the street today, wasn't holding my hand, and I grabbed his arm and I yanked him back onto the sidewalk, and he was crying, Abba, you hurt me, you hurt my arm. Why are you so mean? So that's Gvurash Shebechesed. Okay, like Chesed is love, 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 love. I love you so much. I know if you just had pure Chesed, it would be horrifying, right? No, no discernment whatsoever. Gvurah, kind of uh, strength, also sometimes called deen, judgment, discernment, even a kind of anger is a, is, is, is a, uh, a kind of, um, a, a, like a, a, gr a growth, what do you call it, kind of malignant growth off of the attribute of, of uh, severity over here. But when you do this kind of, a, a angry vibe yanking of your son's arm because you love him so much that you don't want him to get run over, that's gvurash b'chesed. So if there was a story in the Bible about a father yanking his son's arm, like it's maybe the Akedah, I don't know, <laughs> the binding of Isaac, so it, the Kabbalists will look at it and say, Abraham is chesed. Abraham was love, but in Yitzchak, was the embodiment of Gvura, but uh, there had to be a process of doing something between Abraham and Isaac that could bring into the world a certain kind of integration and synthesis of those qualities. That's, of course, Jacob's role in the system. And so stories can be analyzed in terms of int intraspherotic uh, pathways generating different kinds of reality in the, in the Godhead. And so what was a story a moment ago about our ancestral family and its dysfunctionality now holds secrets to the different pathways by which the divine energy has worked its way from the infinite nothingness of Ein Sof to, to our world. <clears throat> and really just the, the narrative that we see in the Bible is, is the tip of the iceberg. It's not an allegory. It's, the philosophers would say, uh, they, told, they tell the story and it's an allegory for some concept that you can read about in Aristotle. The Kabbalists will say, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and these stories, they really happened and they were really doing it, like the, the tip of the iceberg is connected, it's part of the iceberg. It's the part you see, but it's really an iceberg. And the same structure that applies to the top tip of the iceberg is part of the whole iceberg. So when you get the tip, if you're able to go deeper or see beneath the surface, 
you'll get all the way down to the bottom of it, and it's a continuum that's unbroken uh, between that sort of external form and the deepest secret of the tradition. This is a kind of thing, if you're familiar with Pshat, Sod, Pardes, that system that is often talked about, this is a place where the simple meaning of the verse is also the secret meaning of the verse because the simple meaning is just the kind of microcosm that's holding exactly the same content as the macrocosm. So just to link this to your lecture from last week, Xavier mm-hmm. Tzira created the concept of these spheres and played around with the letters. Mm-hmm. Kabbalists built on it. What we see here is actually one model, because there are other models of what a Kabbalistic chart would look like. That's right. Playing with now the spheres, you can see the letters, mm-hmm. and, and then on top, now you have, you're adding that layer, that once you have that chart, in fact, you probably have, I don't even know a slide, where you have the, uh, the mothers and the, the patriarchs mm-hmm. that actually are associated with different mm-hmm. spheres. Mm-hmm. And then once you read that, you can start reading stories and understanding energy flow. Maybe. That's right. You, you can't do that with just what you learn from Sefer Yetzirah. Right. Um, but once you have these sfirot assigned uh, energetic qualities, intellective qualities and emotive qualities, you can start applying them not just uh, in an isolated way to individual figures, or colors, or body parts, or days of the week, or really pretty much anything you can think of. um, But the real fun, I suppose you could say, the real game is to get involved in the sort of alchemical interactions of these things contemplatively. Um, I don't have a slide with me tonight that shows all of those correlations, but um, but clearly you can, you can play this, uh, I can show you quite easily even on this, that the top three generally don't come into play too much when they are reading biblical narratives um, because they're purely intellective, it's wisdom, understanding, it's usually, uh, it, they will come into play when they're talking about the creation of the world, like the first verse of the Bible saying that in the beginning, which is uh, Reshit, and Reshit is associated with Chokhmah, the, the, the beginning of wisdom, it says in the book of Proverbs. So, Bir Reshit means with Chokhmah, the first quality of wisdom, the unspoken subject of the verse, namely, nothing, with a capital N, ain't so, the infinite, created Elohim, which is a name for the Sphira of Bina. And then Elohim, which is Bina, created Hashamayim Vehaaretz, heavens and earth. Heavens not being the job of the meteorologist, but of the, cos- of the uh, what do you say, the uh, psychonaut, maybe, but not the meteorologist. The Shamaim are the six emotive spherot that make up the midsection of the tree, and that's the heavens, if I haven't translated it until now. Shemaim is heavens. 
and earth associated with Malchut, receiving all its light from the sun above. And that's an example of reading a verse with basically the whole tree. That first verse of the Bible is the, the first time that the code is given over, you might say, to initiates who are able to read it in that sense. Um, and also, okay, so that's good. I think we're in a good place with, with the Sphero. Um, I want to uh, keep my promise both to finish within a reasonable distance from the 45 minute mark and to talk about the Zohar tonight, which we really haven't managed to do. Uh, last night I spoke briefly about Nachmanides, who's a really important figure in his own right, the first famous rabbi we know of as a Kabbalist, living in uh, 13th century Spain. Uh, but a believer in a Kabbalah that was exclusively based on secrets passed down from teacher to teacher, with no creativity in the process. You don't just read the Bible and think, hmm, now that I have this interpretive system of the ten sefirot, I bet I could come up with some pretty cool interpretations of uh, different verses and different commandments. Nachmanli says, hmm, it's not, it's not a game, it's not speculation, it's secrets that I have, because I received them from my teacher, and if you want them, come, I'll interview you, and if you're worthy, I'll share them with you. When Nachmanides left Spain in 1270, we see a very interesting coincidence, and that is, suddenly, rabbis start writing lots and lots of creative, speculative, Kabbalistic works. So it does seem to be the classic cat's away, mice will play scenario. As soon as he left, people took that key that we played with a moment ago, the ten wrote, and started running it on their own home computers, you know, and seeing what, what they could come up with. So tons of creative work on Jewish traditions generated by Kabbalists in the subsequent decades. We think that a number of the leading Kabbalists in northern Spain in the last decades of the 13th century uh, hung out together and created a work that was loosely based on their creative interactions as Kabbalists hanging out together in their living room as in various places in northern Spain. Um, but instead of publishing the work as uh, a narrative about themselves, they substituted for each of them a character from classical rabbinic literature, with the star of the show being Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashbi, a second century Tana in the land of Israel. And most people today who are academic scholars of Kabbalah think that that figure was probably based on Moshe de Leon, a Kabbalist from Castile who Gershom Sholem believed was the sole author of the Zohar, and his opinion is no longer considered to be um, the gospel. So today the gospel is, it was written by a committee, uh, or it was written, I tried to give it a, a little bit nicer spin by saying the guys were hanging out. Um, but, <clears throat> so this is what we've gotten to, and 
What we see in the Zohar are two kinds of writing. One is the, the literary framework of the Zoharic literature, and the other is this, you might say, the sermons that are given over. They're not really sermons, that's a terrible word for what they are, but uh, the um, flights of fancy that delve into the secrets of the tradition as they are spontaneously suggesting themselves to these erudite individuals. So framework and secrets that are shared. The framework is, you could say, the, the Zoharic stories. The Zohar tells the story or stories about sages wandering around the land of Israel, more or less around the second century, although it's not careful to only choose characters who are alive at the same time and in the same place in the second century. But the characters live sometime around that period, and they're in the Galilee for the most part. And they wander around, they have adventures. And they don't spend their days in the yeshiva and the Beit Midrash. They spend their days out walking around the fields, meeting cool people, having interesting conversations with them. And sometimes they'll just say, hey, this is a beautiful tree, just like it says in Pirkei Avot that you're not supposed to do. Don't say, like, don't, don't interrupt your <coughs> contemplation to say, what a nice tree. That's from the chapters of the fathers. Never mind. But they'll say in the Zohar, I think it's even a wink, a kind of transgressive moment of pleasure for them to say, that's a nice tree. Let's, let's hang out by this tree and each of us share something mind-blowing. And the Zohar talks a little bit like that, kind of hippie language, but in, but in Aramaic. Um, um, and it's extremely uh, fanciful and quite delightful, really. Then you do have the, the dive in that context. One after another, the friends will begin sharing a secret, usually that they've come up with spontaneously on a verse of the Torah. And that's where, if it ever gets a bit technical, Kabbalistic, that's where it will happen. Like somebody will say, what I said a few minutes ago, let me tell you what that verse really means. It means it ain't so created. You know, that, and then all the other friends will go, wow, my goodness, unbelievable. And they'll usually, like the, the framing narrative will come back in, and you'll hear, read the story of how all the, all the guys were crying and kneeling before their friends saying, if we only came into the world to hear that, Dayenu, that's so beautiful. And then one of them will say, wait a minute, I know something much cooler than that. And they'll all listen. Then you go into the dive again, into the secret teaching about a verse or a commandment or whatever it's going to be. And then back to the framing narrative, how was it received, and so forth. So I, I personally love this book. I mean, I'm not sure if you can tell, um, but to me, this is, this is about as fun as it gets uh, in Jewish literature. 
Um, I'll tell you one funny thing that has been said recently by perhaps the world's most important living Zohar scholar, Yehuda Liebes. And he said it is a bit of a bad boy, but I love, I love it anyway. Well, or maybe especially. He said, the Zohar is not a Kabbalistic book. The Zohar is not a Kabbalistic book. Why would you say Zohar? The Zohar is the greatest Kabbalistic book. Right? It's a bit like saying Bach isn't a Baroque composer. What do you mean? He's the greatest of all Baroque composers. But everybody gets the same equipment, and then it's just, it's like, uh, how can I, what's another metaphor? Uh, one, who's the greatest basketball player ever? Kobe. Who would be the greatest basketball player? Kobe. Kobe? Not Kobe. No. I don't know. This must be an easy question to answer. Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Okay. Oh, that would be nice. Oh, I love those guys. Uh, but let's just go with. Um, go with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, right? Everyone likes Michael Jordan. So far, relatively few scandals. Okay. Michael Jordan is not a basketball player. Right. In other words, everybody else is playing basketball. He's like some kind of ballet dancer, rocket flying, magic carpet riding. He's doing something. He's doing something that's on a different level than everybody else who's on the on the court at the same time. So Levis's point was everybody doing Kabbalah is like trying to give you some information about the Sirot, like the astrologers. Well, you've got to know this. If you adjust the astral lab just right, you'll get the information you're looking for. And the Zohar says, "Give me a break. You think that's deep? You think that's real?" I think that's what it's about. Now it's still using the grammar, it's still using the language of, not so much the language of Kabbalah by saying, this is the Sfirah of this or that. The Zohar, everybody knew for a long time, the Zohar doesn't use the term Sfirot. Doesn't use it. It's almost impossible to understand Zohar texts without bearing in mind that the authors were basing their readings on this system of tensiro. But they didn't use the term. They'll never say spirat chesed is Abraham. They won't. They'll find some poetic way of expressing it that doesn't use that technical term. It might be because as soon as the authors knew that as soon as they use a term that just showed up for the first time in Jewish literature last Tuesday, People will say, what do you mean, Shimon Bar Yochai was wandering around in the second century talking about the zero? That's weird. Or they just didn't use it because they were already playing with it and not so much interested in giving the information, but they were in a kind of erotic arousal of uh, wanting to go deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, as someone described it the other night here. Um, or deeper and deeper into the improvisational jazz or Bach counterpoint or whatever you want to uh, say along those lines. Um, and to me, that's why today, even when people are disillusioned by the idea of Kabbalah offering them some kind of secret that's going to un unlock the meaning of their lives and explain everything to them, or 
people who, like I said, some people believe in astrology, some people say it's hogwash. Some people will say, oh, this dude wrote explain everything, some of them it's hogwash. Whatever you feel about it, in a way it doesn't matter because as soon as you start studying Zohar and you realize they're not trying to give you any information, they're not trying to provide you with some sort of um, panacea for you, but they're also sort of playing this amazing game, dancing with the texts um, in a creative way that really does bring to mind the greatest composers and musicians of all time, then you say, oh, I can appreciate that. That's totally fine. It's not my language. If I wrote a song, it wouldn't sound like Bach or Miles Davis. That doesn't mean that I can't blow my mind by sitting down and listening to Bach or Miles Davis. So we don't speak Zohar, but we can still benefit so much from it. And uh, the saddest part of the story, of course, is that I've spoken for 44 minutes, and we did get to the Zohar, but we didn't get to um, the study session of texts. And that is what I had hoped uh, to at least have five or 10 minutes to do this evening. You I can do one to five minutes. or 10 minutes, yes. as long as you use it wisely. Okay, <laughs> all right. I mean, the other option is to use part of the third session for this. Take the Keep time. going. No, no, I can't take my time. Beverly Birnbaum's awake, so I think we should just use the time wisely. Okay, all right. So, there are a couple of passages in the Zohar that I thought would be particularly pleasurable to share with you. One, the first is from Parshat Mishpatim, the Torah portion of Mishpatim, and this old man who shows up. I told you a moment ago, the big thing in the Zohar is uh, to be walking around with your buddies and meet somebody along the way and discover that this person who's not from the rabbinic class, not an elite person in society, knows a lot more than you do. And you're a great rabbi. So there's also a big inversionary, almost carnivalesque atmosphere to many of these Zohar texts. Just to stop a second, so the Zohar does attract the five books of Moses? The Zohar... Um, was published for the first time in the 16th century in such a way as to structure it uh, 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 in terms of the five books of Moses. There are no pre-print era manuscripts of the Zohar that show such a form. That it's, but what seems to have happened is that very late in the game, people <coughs> thought it wise to organize Zoharic manuscripts according to the Parsha, even though many times, and we see this in the Drashic literature as well, the line from the Parsha is like a, a diving board, and then they hit the pool, and the pool is something entirely different. So if you're asked to give a, uh, a Dvar Torah at the synagogue, and you say, oh, well, this week's Parsha is Ba'era, I'll look in Zohar Ba'era, you're probably going to be out of luck thinking that that's where you're going to find material because it's the Zohar, even though it's medieval and even though it's Kabbalistic, unless you accept Liebes' argument that it isn't, um, it's not organized. It isn't like those informational Kabbalistic or philosophical or halachic works that emerge in that period. We've had Danny Matt here. 
Well, you know, the texts that I brought are from Danny Mann's own translation. Uh, there's no reason, usually, for, for me to retranslate Zohar if Danny's done the job. And um, this, is a, this is a text perhaps Danny shared with you. If he did, let me skip immediately to the second one. Uh, but it's about this old man, uh, but I'm sharing with you the very beginning of it when two of the rabbis who should appear in many Zoharic narratives run into each other at um, of the motel, right? And <clears throat> they were so happy to see each other that one of them, Rabbi Yossi, says to his friend, you don't know how happy I am to see you and see the Shekhinah. I'm looking at you and I'm seeing the Shekhinah, the divine presence. I was traveling with such a nudnik, this old man, and he was draining, asking me stupid questions. And let me, let me tell you like, what I remember. In blue, these are the questions that this nudnik was asking me while we were in the taxi over here. What's the snake that flies through the air and goes about all alone with an ant resting between its teeth? He began with union and ended with separation. And what is the eagle that makes her nest in a tree that never was? Her children were stolen away, but not as created beings, for they were, they were created in a place where there is no creation. When they ascend, they descend. And when they descend, they ascend. Two are one, and one is three. Who is the beautiful maiden without eyes, whose body is concealed and revealed, who comes out in the morning and disappears during the day, who is adorned with adornments. This is the time they, this when narcotics were introduced. <laughs> 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 well, <clears throat> for, only for religious use. Not recreational, not medicinal. Um, so these are obviously riddles. And a lot, a, um, okay, you get that. Um, so this is Rabbi Yossi telling Rabbi Chia. Rabbi Yossi continues and says, all these questions, he asked me along the way, and it distressed me, but now I can relax. If the two of us rabbis had been together, we would have talked about Torah, important things, and not this nonsense. And Rabbi Chia, who's slightly more clever, apparently, at this moment than his buddy Rabbi Yose, says, this old man, you know anything about him? Rabbi Yose says, this I know, he's a, he's a chatterbox, it's worthless. If he would have had anything to say, he would have said it in Torah. And it wouldn't have been such a waste of time, the whole ride over here. Rabbi Chia says, is this donkey driver here? Sometimes empty-headed fellows can turn out to be golden bells. Here he is, preparing his food, preparing food for his donkey. They called him over and he came before them. He, now being the old man, the old donkey driver, said to them his first words, now two are three, and three are one. So their being together in that moment is the answer to one of the riddles that was strung in to that series of riddles. So you already, if you didn't know already, now you really know that we're talking about a character who's about to blow their minds, who's ostensibly not from the rabbinic establishment, although I think it's too, too funny not to share a little bit more. Rabbi Yossi says, there was only one thing that you said that 
maybe was worth understanding, and, but maybe you just said it by mistake, or that really it's meaningless, and I'm projecting the meaning onto those words. The old man said, what was it that caught your attention? Rabbi Yossi says, the, the thing that you said about the beautiful maiden, that's the riddle about the maiden with no eyes. Remember? Remember that one? I had to skip a little bit, but he finally settles down and begins explaining that riddle to them. He says, human beings are so confused in their minds, they don't see the way of truth, in, the way of truth in Torah. Torah calls out to them every day in love, but they don't want to turn their heads. Torah removes a word from her sheath, is seen for a moment, then quickly hides away. And she does so only for those who know her intimately. So the old man here in the Zohar is basically saying something that had I had more time, I would have shared with you from Maimonides as well. And that is that most people learning Torah are scratching the surface and not even touching the deeper essence of it and, and the Torah herself, the kind of inner spirit of the Torah. And being able to engage with the inner spirit of the Torah is the real meaning of learning Torah. Um, and this is the mashal, this is the parable to which it can be compared. A lovely princess, beautiful in every way, hidden deep within her palace. She has one lover, unknown to anyone. He's hidden too. Out of his love for her, this lover passes by her gate constantly, lifting his eyes to every side. She knows that her lover is hovering about her gate constantly. What does she do? She opens a little window in her hidden palace and reveals her face to her lover, then swiftly withdraws, concealing herself. No one near the lover sees or reflects, only the lover, and his heart and his soul and everything within him flow out to her, and he knows that out of love for him, she revealed herself for that one moment to awaken love in him. So it is with a word of Torah. She reveals herself to no one but her lover. Torah knows that he who is wise of heart hovers about her gate every day. And what does she do? She reveals her face to him from the palace and beckons him with a hint, then swiftly withdraws to her hiding place. No one who's there knows and reflects. He alone does, and his heart and his soul and everything within him flows out to her. That is why Torah reveals and conceals herself. With love, she approaches her lover to arouse love within. So, room full of people learning Torah, nobody sees, nobody knows what's going on. There's one person whose heart is open, who knows that there's a secret there that's seen by no one else. Everybody's studying the Torah. He's not, it's not the only person studying the Torah. Of all the people studying the Torah, there's one who is the lover of the Torah. And only that lover has the intimacy with the Torah that's meaningful enough to the Torah that the Torah feels comfortable revealing herself, of course, in a very modest way, suggesting, revealing, hiding, playing this little cat and mouse game with the lover, keeping him aroused and engaged. Um, so you could say so many things about this. Right? The Kabbalists and the philosophers agree that Torah isn't just what you're reading at face value, the simple meaning of the text, but it's something so much deeper, and that therefore you can 
I mean, if I uh, put it in a somewhat skeptical tone, but don't take it negatively, if that's possible. Um, um, how was he going to put it? I suppose uh, only the only the person who's convinced that the Torah has something deeper and hidden to say than it, what we read when we open it and just connect the dots. That's the person that the Torah reveals her secrets to. It's a kind of pact that applies to a very small infinitesimal number of people. That's a, like philosophy, it's kind of elitist. It's not saying that everybody can have this experience. It's saying that even of all the Torah scholars out there, one in a million, you could say, is studying the Torah in a way that will make the Torah reveal herself as she truly is to him because that intimacy has been established between them. So here, comparison, similarities, and differences with the way philosophers would say the Torah is also hiding something, but you see the difference in the, in the eros of the Zohar's approach to it. Um, ultimately, the, the Saba, the old man, will give over some technical teachings. In fact, this passage of the Zohar, this sub, this unit of, of, of Zoharic literature is where we find the most comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of reincarnation as it was understood by Kabbalists in Spain in the 13th century. So, the, so uh, you get a lot of technical detail ultimately in the presentation, but it's, it's couched in this kind of romantic call for intimacy between the student of Torah and uh, I, I hazard to say the text because it's obviously so much more than just the text. Um, and and who, I who is this old man then? Like, I mean, in well, in it's a piece that I cut out. It, 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 there's a hilarious portion that, that for the, because of time constraints, I didn't include. He explains to the rabbis relatively early on that they should not mistake him for a career donkey driver, but that in fact, he was a full-time student until rather recently when he needed to start paying day school tuition. <laughs> I'm not joking. He says, I was, I was a, I was a, a, a chacham, you know, a sage, devoted to the study of Torah, but I have a young son and I wanted to send him to study and I needed to make money, so I had to stop studying and now I drive a donkey. <laughs> and my son studies, but I did, he didn't forget what he learned. She has a modern analogy. I'm the Uber driver. Yes. <laughs> right. I used to be the rabbi of your congregation. Now I'm an Uber driver. Right? Because I have to send my kid to the day school, and it's right. Each kid is is uh, you know six month salary or something. Yes. Well, did you hear the question she asked? If the interpretations are different to different readers. Um, so this would be a case where if you asked Nachmanides, he would reject such an 
an idea because there's only one secret to a particular passage and that's the secret that was passed down from master to disciple over the generations. Um, if you ask the Zohar writers, then absolutely yes, everyone will have their own interpretation and I think that that becomes the default setting of Kabbalists in subsequent generations. It doesn't mean that it's a completely, uh, uh, it's like, uh, it's, that it's completely free play without any rules. There is a kind of grammar and there, there's a rule book you could say, but like basketball or chess or whatever, when you get good enough, you can, or a musician reading a score, yeah? You get good enough and you understand how much room there is for individual expression despite the fact that you're playing by these rigid rules. You have to play every note in the sonata. It doesn't count. You can't just decide on skipping that measure in the Beethoven sonata. Right? But how two different people play it, their interpretation is very different. And so too, when you have this Kabbalistic, you have different Kabbalistic systems, you can see them almost like algorithms that you can apply to, on different materials. But I'm free to generate my own new Kabbalistic algorithm up to an extent. There are, there's a lot of room, but there are also a lot of rules, and they work together. You could say that about Judaism pretty generally, too. Like People who are observant Jews are dealing with a lot of rules and doing so very individually, bringing their own personalities and preferences and so forth to their observance. Yes, I don't know who was first, but... Is there a crisis during this period of time when Kabbalah was submerged, in particular the Zohar, where people were just not interested anymore in studying the Torah, and they had to come up with some way of making it sexy and exciting and inviting, um, particularly with the competition of things like um, astrology and, mm -hmm. and the philosophy and things like that. And it seems that this is Yes. Well, that was um, Scholem's opinion. Gershom Scholem, great 20th century scholar of Kabbalah, argued something very much in keeping with what you just said. I would, I would only remind us that we're not talking about, I think it's fair to say we're not talking about a very sizable social phenomenon. We're talking, it's important, but it's, you know, what they would probably call today, I, I shouldn't say it, but you know, dead white males or something, right? There are a few, these are mostly non-whites, but okay. Um, a lot in the last couple of presentations the importance of Kabbalah's emergence in this center of activity, uh, intellectual activity in the, what's often called the 12th century renaissance. 
Um, but that's a, the 12th century Renaissance is a Renaissance that involved tens, maybe hundreds of learned people, but not hundreds of thousands. We're not talking about a mass movement. No, there weren't. That's what I'm saying. This is a learned phenomenon, and it certainly would have addressed a, a problem that came into being in this period where learned people become disaffected with traditional Judaism, whatever you want to call it, right? Maimonides opens the guide for the perplexed with a letter to his student in which he says to his student, I realize that you've gone to the equivalent of college and you've learned all this, and now you're wondering whether you should be true to your intellectual sophistication or to your Jewish observance and Jewish traditional study. And he said, I want to help you with that by explaining to you how all of your religious learning can be refracted through the prism of the best science we have today. And you'll see that you, there's nothing to be embarrassed about here. On the contrary, everything is coherent and consistent with the most profound teachings that you've been exposed to as part of your bildung, you know, your sophistication, your education. And Kabbalists often, we know by historically, most Kabbalists in this period were students of philosophy before they began exploring specifically Kabbalistic lore. And also there are all those sort of gray figures in the 13th and 14th centuries who sound like philosophers and sound like Kabbalists at the same time. That really sort of defy the whole uh, easy um, bifurcation of the, of the two, the easy. Uh, there's another word that I was looking for, but. Um, the, uh, mm, they, they, were, they were probably detected to be too embarrassed to do such a thing. Yes, maybe uh, you three were all. Um, I just I wanted to know where the Talmud fits in. Did they get back over the Talmud and go directly? Great question. So repeat the question. She's asking, where's the Talmud in all of this? I'll, I'll answer specifically with regard to the Zohar. The Zohar is a text that presents itself as, as uh, a work of rabbinic midrash, you could say. It's, it doesn't read like Midrash Rabbah and the classical works of Midrash from antiquity, but it's, it has that vibe and a lot of the same figures whom we, whom we know from the Talmud. So it wants you to feel like you're, you're sort of still in the Talmudic world. So it's not going to usually say as it says in the Talmud because Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai didn't have a Talmud. He was just Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But what we do see is not a page of Zohar that isn't riddled with intertextual material that is clearly uh, riffing on Talmudic material. It may start out with a verse from the Bible, but then it'll say, well, you remember that time we were talking about Noah's flood, and then, then they'll, and then they'll 
mention a midrash about the flood that appears in, a, in, in, in Breshid Rabbah or somewhere in the Talmud, and they'll do it word for word. They'll say, well, yeah, I remember that? Yeah, that was cool. Well, but I have something else I want to say about that. So they're, they're playing with that material. The erudition of the people who wrote the Zohar is staggering, and they were responsible to the entirety of Jewish literature up to their own time, and able to play with it freely, like uh, master artists. Yes, oh, sorry, okay. Um, I'll take two questions. Okay. You okay, okay. Well, was Zohar canonized as soon as it came out, or was it open? That's also a great question. It certainly was not when it came out. My friend, the Boaz Hus, who might be another uh, month scholar candidate wrote a book called The Canonization of the Zohar, which is a study of the reception history of Zohar um, among Jews and beyond uh, the Jewish community. And it is a process that took time. Uh, probably fair to say that uh, the real canonization of the Zohar gets underway when the Zohar is printed in the 16th century. And that uh, it's the printing and dissemination of the Zohar and the reverence that so many people feel towards this text after it begins circulating, its use in ritual contexts and so forth that create the sense in which uh, the Zohar is on the same bookshelf as the Bible and the Talmud and Midrash Rabbah by the 17th, 18th century. So it's, a, it's not an ancient canonization, but we certainly see by 16th, 17th, 18th century increasing uh, claim, you could say, for the Zohar to be part of the top shelf uh, in the Jewish library al alongside the other books that are the Word of God you might say, even if the Talmud isn't exactly the word of God, right? But it's, it's Did the Zohar top shelf. say that it was also from Sinai? No. I mean, the Zohar, there are, there's a section of the Zohar where Moshe Rabbeinu is the main character, which is kind of cool. And Elijah shows up uh, quite often in the Zohar, hanging out with the guys. Um, so, they often say of their own teachings that they are razin hadatin atikin, which is almost intelligible to Hebrew speakers. Just means, in Hebrew we'd say razim hadashim atikin, which means old new secrets. People like, you know, in Prague they have the alt neushul, the old neushul. So razin hadatin atikin, I'm telling you a secret. I just made it up this second. But it's so deep. It could always be true. It had to be true from before the creation of the world. I couldn't just make that up. That's, it is new, but I did just make it up. But it's been around forever. It's the very first secret. right? So they're comfortable with that. Um, you could call it maybe ambiguity or whatever. But they're, they know that if something is sufficiently profound, it has to have always been true. 
And if it was always true, it was always there somewhere, and they just had to pick up the transmission. Yes? Nice the question that I want to eventually get to is, so what? Yes. Um, there are some uh, dynamics that you've talked about get my attention, starting with the fact that this is about secrets. Mm -hmm. um, someone's going to want to know secrets, so we have to go and ask Nachmanides, and then Nachmanides decides whether they're worthy or not. If they're not worried, this person is just out of luck. Right. Making me wonder whether capitalists are born or whether they're made. Does this run down? Mm -hmm. Do you have to know mm -hmm. somebody? Do you have to be the son of somebody? Um, what does it have to do with the rest of the community? Because it seems to want right. to separate itself That's from right. the community, which isn't, uh, which isn't uh, really a Jewish way of doing things. The rest of Jewish learning seems to be aimed towards living a better life. Um, making things better in this world, even if some of that is referred to through the cut. I'm not sure where all this is going with the, uh, the, uh, uh, the capitalistic uh, way of thinking that it's about secret, only one person really makes the connection, mm -hmm. everybody else is kind of out of the cold, and you share things or do you not share things? And what do you do with them? Um, is it really about just sitting in, well, it sounds like people are kind of getting high. With it could just be the way I say being things. Ecstatic, <laughs> being, being ecstatic yeah. together. Um, how I want to swim in our Is this what people did when they didn't have television to watch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Wow, so many good questions in there. Um, let me, let me make sure I at least hit a couple of those things um, squarely. So first of all, I, I want to make sure that people don't leave with a misimpression um, about Nachmanides and his position, namely that to get the secrets you had to come to him and that it was a highly classified body of knowledge. Um, that position collapses by the end of the 13th century. So we do have about 100 years of uh, Kabbalists who who when they talk about Kabbalah generally make the point of saying, Let keep it, let's keep it amongst ourselves. We have a letter that has reached us from Provence from the end of the 12th century. A, a student of a rabbi from Provence went to Gerona, Gerona in, in Castile and he heard that his student had been teaching like a Kabbalah class. We don't know what his student, we don't know what the teacher taught of Kabbalah, we don't know what the student taught of Kabbalah, but we have the letter of the teacher chastising the student for publicly sharing Kabbalistic information. Um, this is all very early. Once you get to the Zohar, it, it just, ex relatively speaking, explodes. As much as any learned undertaking ever explodes anywhere. We're talking about small groups of extremely erudite, philosophically trained rabbis who um, have taken an interest in this kind of speculation. Um, and like all kinds of learning and doing in the Middle Ages, they don't think that their trade secrets are anybody else's business. 
This is, this is part of what they do. They may also be communal rabbis, and they may be in the Hebrew Kedisha, and they may be supervising Kashrut, I don't know what. But when they're doing this work, this is something that they, um, that they do uh, more privately. And it's, and not everyone can do it. Like, because to do it, you have to be scholar, uh, learned in the Torah and rabbinic literature and this extra stuff, philosophy, Mo'adha Kabbalah. It's a very el elitist undertaking. So even when, it, even when it democratizes to some extent by allowing people who are erudite to get into the game, to speculate and to join the club, it's still an area. It's still it's still a, a rather elite club. By the way, you know the the every profession in the Middle Ages had trade secrets, and you had to be an apprentice to get them. So for a kabbalist to say you want to, you want to learn this, you have to be an apprentice. There's nothing unusual. If you want to be a bricklayer, you have to be an apprentice and get the trade secrets from someone who knew how to make the mortar and set up the scaffolding and so forth. These are all secrets in the Middle Ages. Um, and the, and I just want to. And by saying that the third session will get more into the transition from this earlier medieval approach to Kabbalah as something that is done by small groups of individual scholars uh, to uh, a phenomenon with considerably more mass appeal, considerably more interest in creating material that will be accessible to broader segments of the, at least the literate Jewish community. And eventually, with the rise of Hasidism, uh, translate at least some of this into uh, a real honest-to-goodness, broad social movement that psychologizes a lot of the theosophy, but uh, nevertheless uses Kabbalistic teachings and insights to generate the devotion and, uh, and uh, commitment of very broad sectors of the Jewish population. So there, there will be a a moment in history when it becomes more of a social phenomenon. But uh, it's true, everything we've done so far is restricted to a, a very a small elite, but a very, uh, a, very, a very respectable one in the sense that you, know, you have to kind of take your hat off to people who had mastered all of these traditions and were playing with them so wonderfully. You could say also, you know, so what that Michael Jackson can what did Woody Allen say about the pituitary, pituitary, pituitary gland? Pituitary cases running around. Uh, he didn't remember that. I think that's in, in Manhattan. Uh, he's at a dinner party and he's watching TV in the bedroom. Right? It doesn't matter. But, right? Yeah. So who cares? But if you're interested in the in the game of, uh, of speculation on the Torah, and you get into the sport of learning Torah as something that's rewarding in its own sake, it's still, uh, it still has the potential to be compelling. And of course, it has social and historical implications that are probably worth thinking about remembering, um, even if much of it seems like 
know, ridiculous. Just a final question. Yeah. So when did the era of Kabbalah end? Um, I, I don't when did it reach its apex and then it just mm. ends? Like, when, when, you know, nothing ever ends, but... but I tell you, it's still there. Right. As it peaked? Sure. Today. As it peaked? It's still there today. I mean, this is a very hard question to answer. I would say a couple of things. One is that before the Holocaust, most of European Jewry was Hasidic, and it, I don't want to pretend that they were all scholars of Kabbalah, but, but, but Kabbalah in some form or another, even in popularized Yiddish writing, right? Kabbalah was part of, of that reality, that Hasidic reality that was largely made extinct in the Holocaust. And so the largest single group of people engaged in a serious way in Kabbalah was murdered in the Shoah. That also applies to most of the great Hasidic rabbis. So in other words, if you're asking, well, why, where are all the great Jewish gurus? And why when I see a Jewish guru, it's always teaching me Vipassana yoga and not something with Judaism? Well, because all of the Jewish spiritual gurus were murdered. A couple of them survived. Most of them were murdered. The ones who survived were broken. So in the 50s or 60s, when Jews started thinking about spirituality, there were a bunch of post-traumatic Holocaust survivor rabbis around, maybe one, Avram Yoshua Heschel, trying to say something beautiful, but they were all looking elsewhere for spiritual wisdom. And it, even when you, if you look at the pre-war um, landscape, you see that there were Orthodox Jews who were not into Kabbalah before the war. Your family, Urstadt, Ur you know, your Litva, the Litvaks, the Litvish community, for some time was distinct amongst Jewish communities for its lack of engagement in Kabbalah, to put it nicely. Right. <laughs> right. And what well, last night I showed a timeline. I said Hasidism, seventeen seventy-two. Why seventeen seventy-two? Because that was the first year that the Misnagdim made a cherem on the Hasidim. <laughs> that's we know that that's when the movement uh, emerges when it's, when it's put in the cherem by the Misnagdim. But it is important to remember that the Misnagdim weren't necessarily anti-Kabbalah. To be anti-Hasidic didn't mean anti-Kabbalah. You have Rachel Elior here, who might even open my mouth, but I'll only say that the, through the Vilna Gaon, and even to Chaim of Olozhin, you have Lit Lithuanian rabbis who are great scholars of Kabbalah. The Vilna Gaon wrote a commentary on the entire Zohar and the Tikkunay Zohar. He, he was a Kabbalistic genius like every other kind of genius that he was. But for very interesting, I think mostly sociological reasons, they shut down the the, the Kabbalah part of the operations in the generation following Reb Chaim of Volozhin and said that they never would come out and say that Kabbalah is you know, crap or whatever, bull crap. But it's not, it's not, for, it's not for us. Not, we don't learn that. We learn straight. We learn strict. We learn that. So that's the, that's the scenario. We had a short period of time of 
Lithuanians who don't learn Kabbalah. You have the Holocaust to blame for the death of most people who did learn Kabbalah in, in Europe. In, guess what, there were Jews outside of Europe also, <laughs> right? If you look at North Africa, and you look in, in uh, Syria and Iraq, and in Kurdistan, and Yemen, and so many places, they were learning Kabbalah also. The Yemenites have a special thing with like, there's, a, there's also kind of Litvish Yemenite thing, right? Where they, but there were great Yemenite Kabbalists. And, um, so, and when they came to Israel, they continued. So for a long time in the state of Israel, this is maybe good for Saturday ap- the Saturday afternoon schmooze, the Kabbalah was something you could, you could explore if you were willing to check out what was happening in North African synagogues. When I first came to Jerusalem in the 80s, I was living in Nafla'ot, and I saw these people dressed in white going to a synagogue, and I followed them in, and they were using the prayer book of Rabbi Shalom Sha'abi, which looks like a crazy alphabet mandala, every page, mind-blowing. And you had to be willing on a weekday morning to spend three, four hours praying the Shacharit service to get in. But, so you could find out, you could find people doing Kabbalah in that way, but it's true, in America you never heard anything about it. Um, when I was growing up, we certainly didn't. I'll never forget when, when, it, when it, uh, I think I said the first night of the series, I had gone to a Schefter day school before switching into a public high school, and everyone treated me like I was a rabbi. It was a school with a lot of Jewish kids, but none had come from a day school background. So they're constantly asking me questions. That's how I got my practice for this tonight. Um, There was one guy, a very special young man at the school, six foot something black guy, who was a good buddy of mine, and uh, a real troublemaker. And his parents were both psych professors. He had a basement where they let him do anything he wanted. So he would take the other kids down to his basement, turn them on, and play Sun Ra albums, and Lee Coltrane. And I never forget when he said to me the first time, guys, tell me, what's the Kabbalah? <laughs> now we're talking maybe classes in Hillel Day School, you know, trying to go through the Rolodex, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, Kabbalah. And all I could think of was that in Temple, the rabbi, you know, they invite you at the end of the service to the, a gal, the Gala Kiddush, which they also, for some reason in my temple at that time, were calling Kabbalah Shabbat. Kabbalah Shabbat wasn't like, run and no, it was like seven layer cake after services. That was, so I told him, I think it's like little cakes and some sweet wine, you know, Friday night. He said, could you go back and check that again? <laughs> and so I have to say, like, uh, to, to Don Harrison's memory, uh, that question and uh, my follow-up uh, was very much uh, to blame for not being here tonight talking about this. So... Well, that's a good place to end. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.